This is The Guardian. Today, the violent attack against Salman Rushdie and why the author has endured decades of controversy. On Friday, the British Indian author Salman Rushdie was due to speak at an event in upstate New York. He was talking at the Chautauqua Institution in New York State to speak about the importance of America giving asylum to exiled writers of a cohort of people of whom he's the most famous. Rushdie is one of Britain's foremost Booker Prize winning authors. But after the publication of The Satanic Verses in 1988, he became one of its most notorious. After decades of living with death threats, on Friday, he suffered a frenzied assault. He didn't have personal security with him, and it doesn't seem like there was any sort of scanning uh, devices or machines because the attacker got through um, with a knife. He was all in black and he was wearing a black mask that um, made people think that he was making some sort of statement as opposed to him posing a risk. As Rushdie prepared to speak on the panel, his suspected attacker, Hadi Matar, allegedly stormed the stage and stabbed Rushdie several times in the neck, torso and leg. The novelist, the author Salman Rushdie, has been stabbed at an event in New York State. The amphitheater goes nuts. People are screaming. A bunch of people from the first few rows of the amp uh, ran up on stage to help subdue the man. Uh, now, the attack on author Sir Salman Rushdie at an event in New York has, again, raised questions of freedom of speech. Rushdie is in critical condition. He remains in hospital and faces life-changing injuries. The attack has shocked, saddened, and reignited debates about censorship and freedom of expression. For The Guardian columnist Nezreen Malik, the attack against Rushdie felt like traveling back in time to the late 80s, when the author had his books burned and a bounty put on his head by the Iranian regime for committing blasphemy. Well, it just felt like a throwback. It felt like a sort of weird echo of a time that seems very, very far away. But why was Rushdie a target? And why now? From The Guardian, I'm Nashi Iqbal. Today in Focus, understanding the attack on Salman Rushdie. Nesreen, we both grew up around the same time as Muslims who were children when the Satanic Verses was published. And it was the first time I saw Muslims presented in the news, and it was in this really polarising way. For listeners who are not aware of that book, can you tell us what it was about? Well, the book is a work of magical realism. Um, I think people who haven't read the book or who aren't aware of the detail of it sometimes are quite surprised that it created such a backlash when it wasn't even... Uh, a particularly earnest book. It was quite humorous. The two heroes of Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses fall through the sky from a hijacked airliner and acquire, respectively, an archangel's halo and a pair of devil's horns. 
the magical, the bizarre and the grotesque, mingle with a grimly realistic portrait of Britain in the 80s. From, you know, dream sequences to airplanes to uh, the world of theatre in, in the UK. It's basically a book that is about sort of three intersecting plot lines, uh, protagonists that are of Muslim origin, have Muslim names. If I had to say you know, in one word, what this novel is centrally about. It's about the nature of metamorphosis. It's about, it's about change. Uh, it's about the kind of change that comes when you move from one part of the world to another. It's about the, the, the change of place and, and, and the effect that has on the individual self or on the group or on the, on the race or on the culture. It's about the kind of change that comes about when a new idea comes into the world, like a religion or whatever. It's just really worth remembering that the book is a satire and it's actually quite funny in many places and quite irreverent about many things, about the British state, about racism, about Islam, about religion in general. Um, but some Muslims took the sort of mockery of the Muslim protagonists, particularly the prophet, the angel Gabriel and the prophet's wives, as a personal attack on Muslims and also the name of the book um, as a specific attack on the Qur'an. And how well known was Salman Rushdie before this point? Well, in the Western world, in sort of Western English-speaking literary circles, he, has, he had become quite established. He had published Midnight Children to Critical Acclaim, won the Booker for it in 1981, and then published Shame, which is a shorter novel, um, and in my view, his best work, uh, a few years after that. Um, and then the Titanic verses in 88. So he was on his way to becoming not just recognised and uh, sort of revered, but also quite lauded in literary circles. But my, my recollection of it at the time is that he hadn't quite broken through to outside Western literary circles um, and certainly wasn't considered a sort of global Muslim writer. Um, and so when he had... When he found notoriety with Satanic Verses in parts of the Muslim world, many, many people had not heard of him. Well, the book, as we now know, caused an uproar across the world because of its betrayal of Islam and the Prophet Muhammad, as you've told us. What was that reaction like at the time? The response was a slow burn to begin with um, and then caught on in uh, many parts of the world. Initially, the first response was in South Asia and India, in particular, Rushdie's country of birth was the first to ban the import of the book, which was an effective ban of the book, um, because of a particular kind of quirk of politics at the time, which is fear of unrest. Um, then there were demonstrations in, in Pakistan, uh, in which several people were killed. There were other demonstrations then in other parts of the Muslim world, in North Africa, in the Middle East. They were smaller and a bit more astroturfed in that they were more whipped up by um, by governments in the media. And then in the UK, there were very dramatic uh, scenes of book burning. If somebody swear at ourselves, we will tolerate. If somebody swear at our parents, we will tolerate. But if somebody swear at our prophet and our, our big persons, we won't tolerate. And I remember actually even posters of Rushdie himself being set alight. And, and those were the images that really kind of flashed across the world at the time. Six months after the publication, Iran issued a fatwa on Salman Rushdie's life, which was a call for him to be killed. Ayatollah Khomeini issued a religious decree, or fatwa, 
ordering all Muslims to kill the British Indian writer Salman Rushdie and his publishers for the book's blasphemous attacks on Islam, the Prophet and the Quran. There was even a reward which eventually amounted to around $3 million. Nazreen, why did Tehran take such a drastic step? So there's, I suppose, two answers to that question. One is Iran's domestic affairs at the time. And the second part is Iran's position uh, within the international community. One has to bear in mind that when the Satanic Verses came out, Iran was just coming out of the Iran-Iraq war that had claimed a million lives. Um, it was sort of nine, ten years into its post-Iran revolutionary regime. It was trying to establish itself as a regime under a lot of suspicion and trade embargoes internationally, and also trying to kind of buttress um, and solidify its status amongst uh, other countries in, in the Muslim world. So it, there, was, there was sort of struggles internally with the integrity of the regime, and also a need to project a sense of strength and leadership uh, to the world and to the Muslim world. And so there was a degree of cynicism, I think, in hindsight, um, to the decision to um, announce a fatwa. And it came, like you say, a few months after the book came out. So it wasn't this sort of, you know, very spontaneous eruption of anger. It was kind of a clear calculation. This was something that Iran could get something out of. The power of Ayatollah Khomeini's religious and political legacy was demonstrated at his funeral last summer. Faced by that and with the demands of Iran's unbending senior clerics, the country's new leadership has to show it remains loyal to his memory. The anniversary of the Islamic Revolution, which brought Khomeini to power, is this weekend. It's no coincidence that his successor as spiritual leader chose today to remind his people of the legacy Khomeini left Mr. Rushdie. And I guess what underlines that is that reportedly that Ayatollah hadn't even read the book before issuing the fatwa, or perhaps even after. No, he, ha he hadn't read the book, and that was actually a fact, a fact across... I think many parts of the Muslim world, there was, I mean, the book was banned in many areas, people couldn't read it, but there was no curiosity or interest in reading it. And very few people had read it or even knew what it was about. Uh, and so it was a sort of astroturfed anger, the one, uh, rather than the one that came out of sort of genuine curiosity and, um, and knowledge about the content of the book. And so what happened next? Well, there was, there was a messy period after the fatwa, uh, where even members of the British government, Conservative government at the time, did not entirely stand by Rushdie. Uh, there was a view that he had offended the religion of Muslims across the world and that, you know, if people had, if someone had offended Christians, maybe they would have responded the same way. There was a, a little bit of irritation, I think, with Rushdie as well in, amongst parts of the British establishment. It's sort of hard to imagine now. Really, no, really hard to imagine. Like if you go back and look at some of the things that were written at the time, um, he he was seen as someone who had sort of behaved badly and rudely, and it was just not on. But I suppose we should protect him because he's a British citizen. That was sort of the attitude. There was also a wobble on behalf of Rushdie himself, which he has since expressed regret for, where I think just sort of overwhelmed by the degree of response and, and the, the fear that was inculcated in not just, you know, him and his circles, but his publishers, his translator, as one of whom was killed. 
The dangers he faces have been graphically illustrated by attacks on translators of his novel, this at a press conference last year, and by the murder of the Japanese translator just four months ago. And so Rushdie actually issued a sort of half apology um, for the book and the blasphemy, which he didn't really mean, but he just thought would maybe calm nerves and, um, and quell some of the upset, which, which didn't happen. Um, and then Rushdie had to go into hiding. Well, as you said, he, he went into hiding. He lived under police protection for several years. What did his life look like then and in the years since? So he lived under police protection in complete hiding for about a decade. And it was a, it's a difficult time, a combination of not being able to sort of stay in the same place for too long, having to pull the plug on social um, and personal interactions. His relationship came under a lot of strain at the time. Uh, his marriage broke down. He leaned heavily on his friends. I think one thing that comes out constantly whenever one revisits the Rushdie affair is how, you know, the state has had failed him sometimes, parts of the Muslim world had failed him, but two parties stood by him always, his publisher and a very close circle of friends in the literary community, several of whom uh, also are of Pakistani and Indian origin um, and who stand by him to this day. So just two weeks before he was stabbed, Salman Rushdie told an interviewer that his fears of an attack were a thing of the past and that his life was now normal. Why do you think he was feeling safer in public? Well, a couple of things. One is that the Iranian regime itself uh, made a statement to the effect that he didn't have to worry about the fatwa anymore after a meeting with the British government once relations were re-established between the regime in Iran and the British government. There was a sort of semi-formal olive branch that was extended. Um, And also because he had been, you know, out and about for so long, there hadn't been any security threats or or indications or anything that that came through intelligence. Um, And the the world had moved on from that particular moment. Salman Rushdie update. The author of the Satanic Verses is alive and well and living in New York City now. No more bodyguards, no more Iranian death threat. And I'm just getting back to the ordinary business of being a writer. And I'm very happy to be there, you know, because that's all I ever wanted. Nazreen, on Friday, Rushdie was giving a talk at the Chautauqua Institution in New York State when the man suspected of carrying out this attack, Hadi Matar, was accused of mounting the stage in a black mask and stabbing him 10 times. What do we know about Matar? We know that he uh, was born after the fatwa was issued, so not someone who was radicalised at the time. The 24-year-old accused, who will appear in court again next week, was born in California, but recently moved to Fairview, New Jersey. We know that his family comes from a village in the south of Lebanon that has close ties with Hezbollah, um, but nothing beyond that is particularly solid. Handcuffed and dressed in a prison jumpsuit, Hadi Matar stood silently, his head bowed. His lawyer entered a not guilty plea on his behalf. 
Nazreen, understandably, there has been an outpouring support for Salman Rushdie in the days since the stabbing, both in the literary world and beyond. What have we been hearing? There's been a huge outpouring of support for Rushdie. I mean, he is, he is someone who is just a mainstay uh, of the modern literary scene and has been for four decades now. So there is a lot of affection towards him. Um, and he is, he is someone who also has lots of really good uh, friendships and relationships in the publishing community and the literary world in general. But he has also become um, a sort of symbol of all sorts of anxieties and conflicts about free speech within the publishing world um, and within the Western world in general. So his stature, even as the fatwa diminished and the history of the fatwa receded um, into our distant memories, Rushdie found renewed relevance, uh, I find, in his status as someone who uh, has suffered because he has just written something that he that he believed or thought was um, was of interest or of value. And so he has been adopted once again, um, this time a little bit more wholeheartedly than he was uh, three decades ago, uh, as someone that really needs kind of unequivocal support um, because free speech in general is, is such a fragile value at the moment. Given that Salman Rushdie was used as a political football by the Iranian regime for so many decades, what are the likely political ramifications now? I think there is a clear distancing uh, as well, or a clear absence uh, of claiming that there was a kind of more deliberate connection between Mateen and the Iranian regime on the part of the Iranian government. And so I think it's in everyone's interest at the moment to just view the attacker as someone who was acting alone, um, self-radicalised, uh, and therefore no one really has to do anything about it. There doesn't have to be a breakdown of diplomatic relations. There doesn't have to be a recording of ambassadors. If this attack, I think, had happened right in the middle of the war on terror, so say 10 years ago, I think it might have been a, a, a far more incendiary political, geopolitical event. Um, but I think now it's going to be treated as something that is about an, sort of an, an individual attacker that is not related to any particular government or any particular figure. Coming up, what is Salman Rushdie's legacy? Nesreen, this attack has happened at a time where there are furious current debates around censorship and so-called cancel culture. You've written in The Guardian this week that Rushdie is unwillingly held up as both an inspiration and as a warning to all those who take the right of free speech for granted. What do you make of that framing? I think it's an unfair framing. I think it's an inevitable framing. I think people forget that the Rushdie affair triggered in parts of the Muslim world a big conversation about blasphemy and what it entails and who can apply it and does it even uh, have a place in modern Muslim jurisprudence. Um, and the second life that Rushdie had as a sort of wedge figure is in our modern culture wars about, about free speech. And I think it's it's unfair to him as a writer. Uh, it's a discredit to his work, which is actually not polemical at all. It's fiction. But he has been shoehorned into 
both the clash of civilizations concept, which is you know clash between East and West, and now a sort of intra-clash of civilizations, which is clashes within Western countries. Rushdie worked for many years to move away from the fatwa, both as a physical threat and a reputational one. But it's become almost impossible for him not to be defined by it. Do you think he'll ever be able to escape it? I don't think he'll ever be able to escape it. Um, but I do think that he has managed to maintain uh, something of a triumph, which is his sense of humour um, and his sense of self. And this is the one thing that is constantly striking about Rushdie is that whether it's on social media, whether it's in interviews, whether it's in the, the writings that he still does, or even his sort of forays into popular culture and cameos in movies or comedy shows. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the launch of Kafka's Motorbike, the greatest book of our time. Obviously, except for your books, Mr. Rushdie, which are also very good. He has really maintained his idiosyncrasies and his humanity um, and has not become po-faced and earnest about it, which I think is a huge triumph. Now, a, a near assassination attempt, a near death experience after living under the shadow of it for three decades is something that's very hard uh, to crawl out from under. What's always struck me as weird and conflicting about Salman Rushdie is that he was among the first South Asian writers I'd read that was revered by the Western literary establishment. And he was writing about characters, culture, language that I knew and that felt like they were mine and hadn't been represented to me elsewhere before. And yet he was always presented as the supposed enemy, the bogeyman, and not necessarily by Muslims I personally knew, but definitely through the news and, I suppose, through absorbing the discourse. What was your experience of reading Rushdie? It's really sad because I remember I had the exact same experience and I, was, and I grew up in, the Muslim, in, a, in a Muslim country. So all of this I experienced in Sudan um, and then in other parts of the Muslim uh, world, so in Egypt and Saudi Arabia. So my entire sort of formative experience of Rushdie um, was of this satanic figure, um, which is how he was portrayed in the, in, the, in the mainstream press in some of these countries as a kind of satanic figure because of the satanic verses. And some, sometimes they would even kind of Photoshop little Satan horns on his head. Um, and so his books were not only impossible to get hold of because of the stigma, um, but also you just felt like clearly this is someone who has nothing to say to you um, that is not insulting or derogatory. So I only picked up um, my first Salman Rushdie book, which was Shame, which I will fight uh, anyone who claims it's not his first book. Um, uh, when I became an adult, I moved to the UK and that I began reading everything else. And it was in so sad to me that this was a writer that I had missed out on, so on for so long uh, because of all these completely fake and uninterrogated um, uh, hatreds that I internalized. Um, and I think that the, the, gene, the, the thing about Rushdie that I think everyone needs to come back to at the end, uh, the reason for his being revered by the literary establishment, um, for, and I, for being read by so many people, I think, from backgrounds 
that you and I have, Nosheen, that actually became evangelical Rushdie supporters. I see this a lot. Um, people who kind of came to Rushdie late and then saw so much of themselves and so much kind of explanation and deciphering of their backgrounds that their parents didn't quite have the language or the tools to explain to them. Um, whether it's about Islam or partition or migration or alienation, um, that then there was a sort of really intimate, affectionate bond, I think, some of these readers from Muslim backgrounds felt uh, with Rushdie. And the reason for all of this is that he is an exceptional writer. He just simply is an exceptional writer. He did that at a time when people, you know, didn't have an interest, where minorities were not that, there was not that much empowerment of them. They were not that, they were not that present in the popular culture space. Um, so, you know, the, the reason he is, he is revered and the reason that he is, I think, um, evergreen is that even new generations that discover Rushdie still find so much material in his books that has still not been dealt with in the same really vital way that really appeals to readers, which is with humor, with confidence, uh, with satire and with like intimate knowledge of what people are talking about. I think maybe one of the silver linings of this attack is that he's introduced again to another generation that doesn't just, that then out of curiosity begins to read his books um, and gets the benefit that, that we did all those years ago. Nezreen, thank you so much. Pleasure, thank you. That was Nezreen Malik. You can read her piece, admire Rushdie as a writer and a champion, but don't forget he is a man of flesh and blood, and keep up with developments on this story at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Lucy Hoff and Harim Khan. Production support is by Chelsea Coates and Yasmin Lewis. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Elizabeth Cassin, Nicole Jackson, and Joshua Kelly. We'll see you tomorrow. This is The Guardian.